if I could do a series around the things that have impacted my life, which would make it very personal. And uh, I've asked for 10 weeks to tell personal stories. All this gray has to count for something. The receding hairline has to count for something. The little middle age barely. But I just want to tell you, I haven't had a midlife crisis yet. So I'm really thinking long and hard of what I could do that would be super significant as a midlife crisis. But I have wanted to tell some of the stories of what life looks like, at least for Meryl and I. Um, I had the privilege of leading Meryl to the Lord when she was 15 years old, marrying her when she was 18. We've been together for 40 years. You can do the math. And yes, in January, she does turn 60. So, um, but the surprise, the surprise tonight is yesterday morning, I was kind of, I got up early and I was just kind of reviewing this evening. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to ask Meryl to co-teach with me. So I went, I went upstairs and uh, kind of thought, well, how can I approach this? Because Meryl's favorite place is the back of the hall, not the front. She would, I think, in most instances, rather be with the grandkids than with the husband behind a microphone. And so I chose my moment carefully. I chose the words responsibly. And then she said to me, well, I think the Lord spoke to me this morning when I woke up. So we're going to assume that that is true. However, however, we, Meryl, had no time to prep. So we were with people most of yesterday into last night and today. So she has not had lots of time to prep. And quite honestly, I think sometimes that's the best way. Then it just comes from the heart. It just leaks out. Uh, otherwise, we have too much time to think and we get too cerebral and uh, we kind of think a whole lot too much. So what is this series about? It's called From a Father's Heart. And uh, the things that I've spoken about were, uh, have included, number one, a life of devotion. What is it like to live a life devoted to something beyond myself? Secondly, a life of calling, the reason why I live on this project planet Earth Thirdly, the sacred text, why the scriptures are important and powerful and absolute truth. Third, fourthly, how we live in community, because we don't really understand that, do we? And then two weeks ago, I spoke about a life of generosity. And tonight, I want, Meryl and I are going to co-teach really a life of me, which is a conversation around identity. So grab your Bibles. I'm going to read the passage, tell you which is our primary verse and then the one and only Meryl Diane, the love of my life and my high school, the one who broke my heart at high school. Do you know it took Meryl three years before she said she loved me? And the, I helped her. I coached her on it. I said, you can mouth these words after me. But, but she never really did it until she did it. So be patient, all you young lovers. Things may take a while. All right, grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 1. A life of me, the driving idea around a theology of identity. Now, obviously, we can only cover so much in the time that we have. So for those who might feel, wow, this is a little light, it will be, because there are books written about this, conferences and courses run about this, but we wanted to communicate a little bit of our heart and our understanding. For those of you who don't know, Meryl is a marriage and family therapist. She went off to grad school at 52. 
That's why I asked her to parachute into this message some of Eric Erickson's ideas around the discovery of identity through eight stages of our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible, you can listen up. It's not a long passage. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not a religious term. He is, like we are doing here, really just engaging around family. I want to remind you. In other words, I've told you this before. Don't get bored. Don't go all nutty and crazy on me. I want to tell you again, and I don't mind telling you again and again, it is that important. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. That sounds like a big idea. Gospel identity, it seems to be linked which you received, upon which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, it has that kind of baby clingy thing. You know when our kiddos are in a new place, they grab our hands and won't let go? It's that same analogy Paul is using. By this gospel you hold firmly to the word. In other words, if I let go, the thought is just too scary. I hold firmly to the word, uh, you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you would have believed in vain. But what I received, I passed on to you, that's that fatherly moment, as of first importance. The most important thing I'm going to ever say to you, Paul says, is this. Of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised up on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, or Simon Peter, those of you who are watching The Chosen, and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Here it comes, arguably my favorite text in the Bible. For by grace, by the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of God, by the divine empowering, by God's sovereign intervention, I am who I am and His grace to me was not without effect. I have an identity that comes through His enabling, and His enabling is not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. A life of me. My babe, come and talk to us about Eric Erickson. That's right. So the only way I could kind of agree and do today was I actually just thought of some of you, and I literally thought of Joelle, I thought of Phoebe, I thought of Callie, and I thought of a few others. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did notice there was a bias, <laughs> but but I thought of all of you, and and I thought of myself. I can do this because I would want to do this with my children. I, I would, and I did. Tion knows that I sat with him and had some of these conversations. And so 
honestly, I'm not actually going to look at Eric Erickson's eight stages. You can look it up. You can read all about it. It's fascinating. It's a pretty good lens, psychological lens on development. But I'm going to take three of those, but I'm going to speak to you more um, as a mom, just, you know, around identity, this thing of identity. So um, just... Eric Erickson's three stages, the ones that apply to us in this room, I'm just going to take those three. And they are adolescence, which is 12 to 18. And this is the stage where there's identity and or versus role confusion. And this is the teenage stage where you are working to define and redefine your sense of self and you're testing roles. I used to say to my, I've said to all three of my children, when they were in this stage, I said, you know, just explore, experiment. You, you're trying on garments to see which ones fit. And that's what you're doing. Just explore and experiment. And that's what this is. You are testing roles to see which ones you want to in integrate and to try and form your own identity. Um, so that's just some of you are in that you know, range. Then the young adult, this is where I'm going to spend most of my time. It's 19 to 35, which kind of is majority of you. Um, this is where it's intimacy versus isolation. I actually really like these words that he uses for this stage, intimacy versus isolation. And young adults are struggling to form close relationships and to gain capacity for intimate love. That's kind of what that age is working through, or if they don't develop this intimacy and capacity for intimate love, they basically become socially isolated. This is the stage where you, you, you develop the self-aware self. You, you start to self-reflect. So funny, a T had a friend over this afternoon, and they were sitting at the table chatting about certain things, and then uh, Drew made this comment, and he said, um, yeah, I think I've learned some things. And I just looked at him, I said, yep, some of the logic and reason that resides right here in your frontal cortex, you've kind of grown up a little bit. And he said, yeah, so true. Tian says, mom's going to start charging you. <laughs> but it's actually a hard stage of life to be, you know, really honest. It is. It's a hard stage of life. Intimacy requires vulnerability. And that can be hard that can be really hard because you can get hurt when you become vulnerable. We live in a culture that imposes identity on us, doesn't it? It imposes ideologies, social acceptance, what's cool, what's not, the need to belong, and so we get caught up in what, it, what the world or culture is giving us that looks like what we should be or what we should look like. Um, we accept, seek acceptance in a group context, and then we kind of take on the group identity and start living out of that, their beliefs, behaviors, and a way of being. That is not identity. That is not identity, which we're going to look at. But if you stay in this mindset of what cultural lenses are or societal lenses are, you become addicted to self. I don't know if Chris is going to mention it, but he said he looked up Frozen. And you know all those wonderful songs young girls love to sing? No, I wish I could, <laughs> Dana. <laughs> but um, it's so self-preoccupied. It is so self-centered. It is all about me. 
and um, you become self-absorbed, self-obsessed. Actually, you become insecure or narcissistic if you stay in that realm of what culture and society is kind of giving you. I like personality tests. I always have, and Chris hated them for decades, decades and decades and decades. But in the last 10, <laughs> you're pretty, you're up there. <laughs> and I'm joining you. In the last decade, he's kind of got into them, which has been super fun, as our kids have got into them and educated us. But, you know, Myers-Briggs is a helpful one. Enneagram is a helpful one to teach us how to understand ourselves, strengths, limits, gifts, you know, weaknesses. It, it's just this lens. It's not identity, but it's a lens to help you understand some of who you are. They do play a crucial role in your personal growth because they're teaching you self-reflection. They're teaching you how to look at self and say, oh, that's why I do what I do. Oh, that's why I react in the way I react with my husband or your friend. Um, but these proclivities are not who you are, okay? Intimacy, I like to say, is into me you see. And that's the invitation of intimacy. You are saying, okay, into me you can see. I'm allowing you, because I'm becoming intimate with you, to look into me and really see you. Well, some of you got married recently. <laughs> Thought of you, Sam and Caleb. And marriage is the great revealer. It just is. Because all the layers are stripped off. And the person gets to see the really naked you. It's where everything is stripped away. They get to see that you. Um, <laughs> I missed that. Whatever what said. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But this stage is so crucial. So this is the stage of intimacy versus isolation. Yep. So um, how vulnerable are you willing to be in this stage? And whether you're married or not, this is the same question. How vulnerable are you willing to be at this stage of your life? Can you listen to someone reflect back to you how they experience you? It's really important to be open to doing that. Are you open to correction? Are you open to somebody saying, hey, you kind of came off harsh in that moment? Are you cultivating a safe place where you can wrestle and share and remain in community in committed relationships even when it's difficult? I want to read to you something from very, very... Oh, no, not that one. <laughs> Something from one of our community who posted on Instagram, and I'm so proud of her. This is what she posted. This will be a picture I will cherish for the rest of my life. Because these people changed my life for real. Through them, I have seen the love of Jesus whether it was a nice cooked meal or a place to rest my head, they gave it. And because of that, I have fallen in love with Jesus. Thank you, friends. Your generosity went a long way. And that's what this looks like. When you choose to say, hey, 
in, in a community like this, hey, I've got some doubts. I'm really struggling with my walk with Jesus. I don't know what I believe anymore, or I'm struggling with sin. When you choose to give that layer of vulnerability into a safe community, that is how you grow. That is how you cultivate intimacy and not isolation. Don't isolate from others. Stay honest and stay real. Then really quickly, the middle adult stage is 35 to 50, and this is generativity versus stagnation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but basically you're discovering your sense of your contribution into the world. And I love that because, or a lack of purpose. And to me, purpose is found in what you're giving, isn't it? It's found in giving out. It's found in embetterment. It's, it's found in making the world a better place. So the value is living, I believe, like the Bible tells us, for the benefit of others. And this is the stage 35 to 50. Okay. So how? You tell me when. How, do you, how does your identity formation happen? Just on a very practical level. I think Chris is going to give you a very solid Christocentric um, lens on it because ultimately that is your identity is it is found in Genesis 1 where God says you are made in my image and my likeness and he chooses to call us children whether you acknowledge him or not he still sees you and I as children Christ in me is the hope of glory and I think the deep work of partnering with the Holy Spirit is this cultivation of true identity. When you submit yourself, when you lay down your life and you say, God, you can lead. You can be an authority. You can guide me. You can give direction and you can give commands. And sometimes he chooses to do it through others. It's not just from him. Some of my most painful and yet probably the best rebukes I've ever had are from Chris and some other people super close to me. And those have produced the most fruit because I had to open up and say, okay, I'm going to look at this. So becoming obedient and trusting in his goodness. How do you grow in your identity? Oh, that's my grandson. Oh, that's breaking my heart right there. Is he okay? Okay, how do you grow in your new identity? We often want to see, please hear me on this, this one is really important. We often want to see ourselves further along in our journey than we really are, okay? So we try and kind of think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm you know, and, and we just project, to be honest, a false self. We project where we're not really, but we project that maybe into a community like this. I mean, we do it. We, we want to appear more spiritual. I loved it. I walked in and Kate and just said to me this beautiful prayer that they'd prayed over me. And I'm just like, yes, I'm not getting up here to pretend I'm smart. I'm not getting up here to pretend I'm clever. I'm just getting up here as a mom. And I'm going to say to you, these things matter. So we often want to see ourselves further down the journey and we present this false self. Most, the most important season of your life is the one you are in right at this very moment. 
This is the most important season you are in in your life. And count this present moment as the moment that you engage in this journey of maturation, in this journey of forming the secure identity in Christ. It's the only place God meets you. Do you know that? God isn't meeting your future self. <laughs> he sees your future self. Isn't that encouraging? He actually sees your future self made whole. But he doesn't meet you in your future self. He meets you in the here and now. I love that new song. I actually wanted to have the words here. To just Because it just, to me, it spoke to us about God meeting me. Not just a generic thing. Me in this place now. It's the only place, it's the only way to let the work of God come to fruition. Brian Roundson, who I did ask to send me one or two things, said this, and I love it. Take the path in front of you, not the one a mile ahead, because it won't work. Take the path in front of you. All of us have struggles. All of us have things that we're wrestling with. Take this, this path right in front of you. Scott M. Peck, his idea was acceptance of reality is the pathway to maturity. Acceptance of reality. You cannot pretend things are better than they are. You cannot try to pretend your marriage, your friendships, your whatever it is you're wrestling with is better than you are. You have to be in the, the truth of reality. Mental health, I think the best definition is by Scott M. Peck, and it's dedicated to, the real, to reality at all costs. We can't ignore, fight, you know, deny our current reality. We have to face it. We have to look at it. In a way, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because when we're in pain, what do we try and do? Move away. We move away from the pain. But the, the counterintuitive bit is when there's pain, you actually want to move into it. You want to look at it. You want to go there. You don't want to step away. Because that is where you'll find the most growth. And I can say that as a believer <clears throat> since I was 15, what is that, nearly 40 years. No, longer, 45. <laughs> anyway, um, some practical ways. Tell your story. Okay, tell your story to someone. I want to encourage all of us, your story matters. Don't keep it in. Tell your story. Listen, encourage, and pray others with with others when they tell you their story. Let's be a church who really listens to where people are at, encourages them, pray for them, and then check in. Don't be isolated. Check in. Let people check in with you. That's it. Not too shabby for a granny, huh? You know what I'm saying? Identity is so pivotal to all of these conversations. Um, the, the collage of identity, which is the way we think about ourselves, um, is invariably brought together by our parents, what our parents sowed into us. You're an idiot, you're amazing, you're gonna amount to nothing, you're gonna become a doctor. Your siblings, what they said about you, 
your community, what your community expects of you. Tim Keller was talking about um, the difference between the developing world and the Western world. The developing world, you find your identity in the community. You are who the community wants you to be. In the Western world, it's absolutely not that. It is go and find yourself. Isn't it amazing? More people than ever are on anxiety medication, depression medication while we find ourselves. Doesn't it hint that maybe it's all screwed up? Doesn't it hint that that's absolutely the wrong conversation? Pursuing my dream is completely the wrong conversation. Maybe. Our parents, our siblings, our community, our culture, look at Instagram and it tells you that our spiritual traditions, our peers, our performances, and our dreams and our wishes. Now, what this passage does, and remember, I almost take that verse, I am who I am by the grace of God, to describe biblical identity. Let me tell you a couple of stories. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of first importance. Of first importance. This, the beginning of a journey of identity discovery, the beginning, the most important is the understanding of my identity is connected to my relationship with Jesus. My identity is connected to my relationship with Jesus. I came to him and I don't apologize in the series for many personal examples. I hope they help. But I came out of high school incredibly successful. I was in the top academic class. I ran for the school. I was in the top rugby team. I was in the top uh, cricket team, say baseball and football if you want. I debated for the school. I was in the school play and performance production. I've got the Good Fellowship Award. I mean, I was styling. So how many of you know I was in serious trouble when I said yes to Jesus a year later? Because I came into my relationship with Jesus with an identity crafted by my achievements at high school. My parents liked me. My siblings were proud of me. My friends connected to me. And suddenly Jesus comes. And you know the first thing he said to me? Give me all your sports gear. I had just spent hundreds of dollars the equivalent of on a new cricket bat, a new cricket box, a new pads, helmet, not helmet, cap, all of that kind of stuff. A brand new bag. I was playing with national level players. I don't say that to be proud. I'm telling you how deep this was as an ident identity. And it was applauded. Everyone was proud of me. Look how amazing. And Jesus said, I want your cricket bag. And he could not at that moment of time ask a more challenging thing of me because I knew my identity was linked to my sporting achievement. My dad liked me because I was a good sportsman. Didn't really care about academics, but he cared about my sporting achievement. And I went to my brother who was five years younger than me. Who was, I was 19, he was 14, and I gave him all of that. And my dad said to me, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm not sure, Dad, but this I know. Jesus wants to give me a new identity. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looks like, and I feel dreadfully vulnerable right now. When we engage in the Jesus story, the thing that has given us the greater sense of I am will be the first thing of first importance that will be asked of us. Out of his great love that we're not held captive in bondage like Gulliver's Travels, to the many little strings that tie us down, that give us an identity. Your story might be the opposite. You came out of school or out of college with just 
manageable um, grades, you just got through, you didn't make the scholarship that you hoped for, you didn't get the um, sporting achievement that you hoped for, and you, 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 you face this moment with now not high performance, but your identity is low performance. Ah, you'll never amount to anything. Our first performance. The cultural gospel, one theologian said, is an expressive individualism where identity is the only moral absolute today. In other words, the way I see myself is my only moral absolute. I am my own Messiah. I will save me. I will have a dream that's big enough. I will make money that's enough. I will live in a house that people will envy or not. And I am my Messiah. Of first importance, I will do what suits me because my society says that. Frozen says, let it go. Let it go. Don't hold, a, hold it back anymore. Let it go. Turn away. Slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. You are your own redeemer. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules. And everyone applauds. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. The cultural gospel has us ensnared because we cast ourselves in the primary role as the one who will save us. Our first importance that Christ died for our sins. You know why I'm passionate, like Meryl. I'm passionate about this because I would hate you to waste years where you end up thinking all of this is for nothing. I've done what culture demanded. I honored my parents as well as I could. I did the thing that was leaked into me all my years of schooling, and I've come out of that into my middle, middle age, and I actually don't know who I am. I do not know why I am, but I've done a whole lot of stuff, and it's kept me super busy, and it never satisfies, because this gospel, dear friend, is the gospel of a father who sent his son. You know when that moment was for me? When I was about 26, 27 years old, I was leading a little church in Durban, South Africa, probably about this size then. And we were away at a conference, a pastor's conference, in the afternoon we had off, and I was just lying on my bed in the hotel room, just dozing, chilling, relaxing. And out of nowhere, I heard the Spirit of God speak into my inner core here. You know that kind of inner audible voice? You can't hear him, but you do. And God speaks to me in phrases, never long paragraphs or essays. And this is what he said to me. You can only have one father. I said, what? And it was amazing. In that moment in time, I knew exactly what he was saying. You can only have one father. And see, what the gospel does in unlocking my true identity, I am who I am by the grace of God, was the realization of the hold my pops had on me. Our church 
used to do this in, in a school hall. We had no chairs in. And we were all in our 20s. The average age of the church was probably 23 to 25. It was Durban, think Miami in the summer, sweating. The school hall had no air conditioning in, and we would dance. I mean, the worship was not gentle like this. It was riotous. It was sometimes two drummers going, bah, bah, and we would jive. Because if the Bible said dance, we danced. If the Bible said shout, we shouted. We were young enough to actually believe we should do what we say. But in the back of my mind was, what happens if my pops walks in? Because he'd said to me, listen, if you're going to be a pastor, why aren't you at least respectable like a Methodist pastor? He just showed his absolute disgust and disdain at me. I remember a year, two, three, four years before, I was his eldest son. I was the apple of his eye. I was the top achiever. What are you doing with your life? See, the gospel and a true identity that's only forged and found, found in him is, arrives that moment when we have to decide who will be the greatest authority in our lives. It might be your Instagram account. It might not be your dad. It might be the boy or girl, the guy or girl that you're trying to impress that you are creating a false self so that they would fall in love with a false self. But I knew what I had to do. And I'll fast forward the story. I sat over lunch with my dad and I looked at him. He's got piercing blue eyes, blonde hair, had back in the day, our Dutch-German heritage. And I told him the story in more detail than I'm telling you now. But I landed with this, Dad, I can only have one father and I've chosen my heavenly father. He is my father from now onwards. And he looked at me, a tough construction man, He hit me when I was 14 because he caught me smoking. That's how tough he was. He said, if you want to act like a man, I'll treat you like a man, and he decked me. And he looked at me and one tear rolled down his cheek and he said, well, then I guess we're going to have to be friends. See, something had to be broken because my identity was held captive by my dad's opinion of me. The beauty part of that story is they went to a conference I spoke at many years later it was about four or 5,000 people at the conference, and I opened the conference on the Monday night. When I climbed off the stage, my mom and dad happened to be there, and they ran, and they put their arms around me, and they wept, and we said, they said, we're sorry, we just didn't know. But you see, I was held captive. My identity was intertwined by their sense of approval of me. And I don't think we can ever step into that full approval or identity until we settle who our father really is. Are you with me? This is a hard journey, dear friends. But the identity that comes out, I am who I am by the grace of God is the gift at the other end. We don't have to create this false self, then try to live the false self, then beat ourselves up because we can't produce what we've created, and we live forever under the guise of failure. Oh, I want a body just like that. So I'm going to eat just like that. I'm going to exercise just like that. I'm going to use those products just like that. I'm not talking about healthy stewardship of our bodies. 
I'm talking of a false self that we create hoping that it will impress someone somewhere. The only person who it really matters is what he thinks about me. That's the, that's the identity that I have and the only one worth having. Are you with me? Whose son am I? Carrying on quickly, um, this gospel is Christological, as I've said, according to the scriptures. You know, this beautiful book is not a book that recommends identity. It's a book that crafts identity. And it's our belief and application of this that brings true freedom. Please hear me. I had a beautiful Land Rover that died on me. And uh, I loved that car. It was expensive. It, it was way too heavy on gas. But every time I got into that midnight blue Land Rover, I felt like a million dollars. But, but you know, if I decided one day, you know, I really want a super cool Land Rover, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put up some sugar in the gas tank. I, I just think it's going to kind of zoot it up, give it a little bit more something. Well, how many of you know that's not according to original design? It might be a good motive. It might be a crazy idea. But when my Land Rover splutters to a halt and I have to call AAA and he says, what did you do? And I'm all embarrassed and awkward because I'm a 62-year-old adult and I say, I put, I put sugar in the gas tank. The guy's just going to look at me in absolute disbelief, hoping he misheard me because of my accent. That's what he'd hope. We want a true God identity. It's when we take the book out of the glove compartment. Sugar in the gas tank. Let's just have a look here. Nah, not recommended. I adhere to the beauty and the wonder of this text. Make sense to you? And so too, this great gospel is according to the scriptures. As we take the scriptures and we allow the scriptures to come into our heart, I've fought with the text. There are times I've wrestled with the text. I've wanted the text to say something else. I wanted the text to say something else. I remember I was, um, and those of you who've been around for a while have heard these stories, and so I do apologize to you. But I remember... Uh, going down, I have a devotion in the morning. Back in the day, it was an espresso and a banana and some water and my Bible. And I went downstairs to have my devotion that morning, and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, on your knees. I thought, oh, dear. But I'm a good boy, so I get on my knees, and he says to me, Song of Songs. Now, this is a cool moment, because Mary and I had been making a lot of love recently. We were a bit too busy, you know? And so I'm thinking, all right, God, you prophesy, man. This is going to happen now. This is, I mean, we are, we're going to happen now. And so, so I, I start reading. And I read it, and I read it, and it's beautiful, but nothing's jumping out the page of me. And then this line does. There is no flaw in you. It's the husband or the lover talking to the beloved. There is no flaw in you. And I'm so dang honest. I literally put my hand up, and I say, excuse me, God, I don't know if you want me to say there's no flaw in Meryl, but I can't lie. Because if you don't know, I could give you a 
10 things where she really can tweak, you know, do a bit of a better job. And it's like God retreats. He walks out the room. Next day, same thing, same routine. I go down on your knees, open, open the Bible again. The third day, the same thing. And then God says to me, son, you're not getting this, are you? So what do you mean? He said, you're trying to do my job. My job is to transform Meryl. Your job is to prophesy over her what she will become. According to the scriptures. He said, you're not prophesying, son. You're just complaining. You see, there's such power in the text. And instead of defending, putting up my gloves to defend my position and argue, which I can, I can out-argue Meryl because I've got more words. I can just out-exhaust her. I've just got way more words than she's got. But you see, the gospel according to the scriptures is there is transformation when we allow the text to get into our hearts and turn us around. And I had to go, babe, I'm so sorry. I've tried to change you. But God has spoken to me. There is no flaw in you. That doesn't mean it's Meryl perfect. It means, babe, it's what you are becoming. I am so sorry. Can I prophesy over you what God is doing in your life? Do you understand the journey of identity? Do you understand the power of the text? I need to land because we've taken a lot of your time. But I want to land with one more identity piece, and there's much to say. I am who I am by the grace of God. Grace is divine enabling. It's God walking me through the difficult times of my life. Some years ago, I was at a conference up in Toronto, actually, speaking up there, and a man walked up to me, and he said, can I have your belt, please? Well, that's interesting. You're welcome to your belt. Not a nice one anyway. So, so I take my belt off, and he says, turn around, and he wraps it around my body like this. He says, lean forward. Now, that's all trust, isn't it? So I lean forward, and he lets the one side go, and I fall forward. I mean, I caught myself because everyone knows how athletic I am. <laughs> I just needed a light moment. But, but, but that, that, the prophetic word, and then he said Psalm 105. So I went to Psalm 105, and it's all about the life of Joseph. And you know, it's a story worth researching, reading, and praying through in our life of identity. We see the handiwork of God where he had a father who abused him with generosity, gave him a coat no other boys had. And so what was his identity? I'm Joseph. I'm the guy with a coat of many colors. Then he prophesies, so now not only he's the guy with the cool coat, he's now the guy with the cool coat and the prophet. And of course, true to his ego, he just splurges that out to everyone else. And now he's the guy with the coat and that. And then his brothers are as angry as sin with him. You can imagine. He's spoiled. Now he's prophesying how we're going to bow to him. And he goes out to tell his dad on how his brothers are doing and they enslave him. What is happening here? It's God who's at work inside of him. I am who I am by the grace of God. It's a divine enabling that brings out the true identity. Ladies and gentlemen, if you really want a God identity, please come ready to die. You will die to your dreams. You will die to your wishes. You will die to your aspirations. You will. 
It's part of this great and glorious gospel. But this gospel, as we've seen, is a gospel of resurrection. He was raised on the third day, and you will be raised on the third day. The thing that you gave up to, I was a blooming pain in the butt 24-year-old planter, and I said to my embarrassment all these years later, I want the biggest church in Durban. That was my dream. Let it go. No more rules. I am going to be the man. God says, oh, I've got the story for you, son. You're going to die. And God sent me to a broken church, Pentecostal church here in East San Gabriel Valley. And for 14 years in obscurity, Meryl and I loved it. She's beautiful today. I had to die to, I want the biggest church in town. And the beauty of all of you is the outworking of that ability to die. What is our identity? It's when we are who we are by the grace of God. How does that identity get forged by the gospel being applied in our lives? How is the gospel applied in our lives when we allow God to let us die and die beautifully well? Surrender the things that we think are so dang important. And then you see out of that, God resurrects a you that you love. I Honestly, I really like me. But boys, there's been a lot of dying between then and now. What's my gift to you as we close? Can the musicians join me, please? My gift or desire is that you are able to go home tonight with this conversation in your heart and allow the Spirit of God to just unveil, like he did with me and there are many other stories, the things that held you captive and wanted to keep you in identity that wasn't his for you. And as he takes those jackets off you, cardigans, sweaters, hoodies off you, out of it will emerge, I am who I am by the grace of God. Are you with me? I shared with you a couple of weeks ago when I realized I had a heart issue and they rushed me to the ER. I never wanted to be the guy with a heart issue. But you see, when we engage in this grace of God story, we won't be that person. We'll be the person who lives a surrendered life to watch what God will do with you. I am who I am by the grace of God. Now, we're going to sing that new song again if all of you are ready and able. We're going to stand together, and this is what I want to ask of you. One, if you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and if you say, Chris, what's that? You haven't been. If you've heard about it, you probably haven't been either. But it's a wonderful moment where God comes by his spirit and he wants to baptismo, fully immerse you with the person of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes there's an increase of power and maybe even the language of prayer, the, the prayer language, the tongues. Uh, Joe and Shelley, where are you? This side over here. They're going to stand over here with some peeps and you can just mosey across. They're going to pray with you. Secondly, on my left-hand side, you saw Meryl and I co-teach and it's taken longer than normal. Of course it has. 
But if something rang true for you, and you say, would you guys pray with me? There'd be a team on my left, so delighted to pray with you. Because we've all needed prayer at some point in time as God's derobed us and re-robed us. Are you with me? Let's stand together, please. Thank you. I am who I am by the grace of God. Out of me emerges this true me, this real me, this eternal me, this transcendent me. The me that will live on in the eons of the ages to come. That me is emerging. I don't have to create it, it's created in me. Let's sing this new song again. And if you do want prayer either side, just come on up. There'll be a team totally stoked to pray with you.